Hey everybody, Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor here. So you hear me say it all the time, yes, we're gonna be interviewing a friend of mine, but this is a different kind of friend. This is a colleague and a friend. Uh, Dr. Rafael Palaio and I have been friends for quite a long time. Um, he's actually a clinical professor at Stanford University. And since 1993, he's been part of the Stanford Sleep Disorder Center. He teaches sleep and dreamings as an undergraduate course. And by the way, that was the course that his mentor and in some ways my mentor, uh, Dr. Bill Dement, started. And I will share with you that uh, Dr. Palaio gave me one of the greatest privileges I've actually had um, to date. Uh, in that I got to lecture in the very last sleep and dreaming course where Dr. Dement was still with us. And I know that he was actually in attendance and um, it really brought a tear to my eye to have the opportunity to say thank you um, both to Raphael and to Bill for all that they've done to me. Um, but he is a pediatric neurologist. He's the smartest sleep guy I've ever met. Every time I have a really tough case, he knows he's getting an email from me. I want to introduce to everybody Dr. Raphael Palaio. Raph, thanks for coming on the show, dude. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. You're very kind. And you almost put a tear to my eye thinking about uh, Bill DeMent. I remember that day when you lectured. Um, I miss him. I miss him a great deal. But thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. We're, so first of all, we're so excited to have you. Um, but you know what I thought I, we could do for my audience, and by the way, we're going to be talking a lot about family and sleep today, but what I thought would be kind of fun is to give everybody a little bit of a history about like where was sleep medicine when we started, because uh, I know you and I had a little bit of that conversation earlier, uh, and it was a whole different world when we both first got into sleep medicine. Why don't you uh, maybe give the audience a little bit of flavor of what it was like um, uh, when you were, you know, taking the boards and kind of getting interested in sleep, I mean, was anybody else even doing it at the time? Sure. I mean, sleep has gone from being when I took it, when I started getting involved, a curiosity, kind of being I was viewed as eccentric for getting into sleep, and you probably were also. So now it's viewed as a necessity. I teach a college class that people view, oh, this is maybe a fun class to take. Now I think it's a necessity to take the class, and it actually now meets science requirements. I got curious about sleep in the when I was in college. Actually, in high school, I think I had a lucid dream when I was like 12. So that's like, I had that experience. I'm like, what's this all about? And I will never discuss a lucid <laughs> dream because it's kind of weird what I was doing. But the point was that I had this experience. I'm like, do other animals sleep? I mean, why do other, why do other animals sleep? Do other animals dream? And when I was in college, I was just cleaning glassware to make money in the lab. And I asked this, the graduate students there, does anybody study sleep? And somebody laughed and says, nobody does that. And I said, well, I'll do that someday. And then- uh, <laughs> You sure did, dude. <laughs> the next, next day, somebody brought over a book and, they, and it was a textbook that had talked about sleep research. And then uh, I got there in 1988, started medical school. Um, so excuse me, finished medical school in 88. And uh, just started from the first week of medical school onward. My, when I discovered that sleep was a real medical specialty, I focused my entire career path to go into sleep. So I did research on this when I was in high, uh, when I was a medical student. I started visiting high schools and junior high schools in the Bronx. I went to medical school in the Bronx. My entire focus was on learning about sleep because I was fortunate to be in the uh, one of the oldest sleep labs in the country, I'm out of your hospital. When I got to uh, Stanford in 1983, there were entire states that didn't have sleep labs. If I told somebody, entire states didn't have sleep labs. If I told somebody that I was involved in sleep, 
they thought I was joking that I was an anesthesiologist. That's what they thought. I got that all the time. I would be yeah. like, yeah, I'm a sleep specialist. They're like, do you do anesthesia? I'm like, no, dude, sleep. Sleeping, <laughs> right. The people are weird. And I remember um, as a resident telling people, I'm going to study sleep and be a sleep doctor. And people are like, you're the first doctor in your family. What are you doing? You could be a surgeon, you could be anything you want. I'm like, no, I want to do sleep. I'm just curious about why this happens, what's happening in our brains. And the thing is, the reason that we do it is it's so much fun because it's unusual for patients not to get better. I mean, you see people suffering for a long time with these disorders, and once you like, once you address them correctly, they get better fast, and it's a good feeling. You know, it's a mitzvah to practice it is. medicine. It's awesome. It's a good. It's a good thing to do. So. Yeah, but it's crazy that there was just nobody doing it. And I remember um, when we started, the psychologist and the physicians were taking the same test. That later got divided up. And, and as it as grew, grew to an industry, grew to a business, rules were created that separated us, but it was not necessary separation. Yeah. So so what Dr. Palio is, is mentioning is, is we both actually took the same board exam, even though he's an MD and I'm a PhD, uh, because uh, in early in the field, we just needed people to take the exam. <laughs> you know, it was called a rogue board. Um, and I was fortunate that I kind of got in under the wire and was able to do it without going to medical school. Now, of course, they have specialized tests for behavioral sleep medicine. So just for PhDs to take and for and for MDs to take. But it was uh, it was a little wonky there for a while for sure if i now, may one thing i could say yeah. how crazy it was you mentioned dr dement earlier one of my prized possessions is uh about a year and a half ago uh i offered to clean out his garage and covered in rat droppings i found that when they created the field of sleep they made up this work with polysomographers so he has to create a certificate for himself saying he's a clinical polysomographer certifying it and he's assigned it himself so oh he has God, to sign his awesome. own certificate saying he's his own specialty. So that that's how that's how crazy this all was when it first started. So that's now proudly displayed in my office. His, that's his, awesome. He, yeah, his own certificate saying he's he declaring himself a polysomographer. That is funny. So so when we look at sleep and we look at sort of the evolution of sleep, not just the medical field, but of sleep itself, right? Sleep is changing. You know, one of the things I talk about with my patients all the time is, you know, sleep from the 40s and the 50s, we don't have that kind of sleep anymore. You know, we're in the 2020s now. An entire new type of sleep is is evolving with us. And I feel like it's an entire family. Everybody that's in the domicile affects each other's sleep. And that was kind of the conversation that you and I were having a little while ago, which is family sleep and how important is sleep to the overall family? How important is sleep in, as an example for younger children, then moving up into adolescence? And then of course, how does children's sleep affect adults' sleep is always a big question. And these are these are questions that you've been answering for your in, your entire career. Maybe, maybe you could enlighten us with some of the some of the things that you've understood and learned about how how does family relationships affect sleep. Well, the key concept, there's a paradox of sleeping, and it's all animals have to sleep as far as we know, but a sleeping animal can be attacked at any point. So logic would be for us never to sleep at all. One of the most famous sleep sayings, I'm sure you've said it before many times, is if sleep has no function, the biggest mistake evolution ever made. But it, but also, the need for sleep is biological, but the way we sleep is learned. We're taught how to sleep. Sleeping is a learned behavior. It's just like food. All newborn babies drink milk. Five-year-olds throughout the world have different diets. You learn what to eat, and sleeping is the same way. As a couple, uh, everybody who's listening to the, to this podcast, any of you have a, have a regular bed partner, you have learned to sleep with that person. And the first night you ever shared a bed with that person, one of you declared 
one of you grabbed the side of the bed, and the other one was just happy to be there and took whatever side was left over. And that becomes henceforth your side forever. There's no more further conversations about this. This is your side. That's the other person's side. And when you travel, you go to a hotel or something, you put your bags on one side, the person puts their own stuff. And in fact, if one of the one person in the, in the couple is traveling and you're sleeping and, and, um, and, and you're staying in, on your side of the bed, if you cross over to the other person's side of the bed, it's like an invasion of privacy. If, if, it's if, crazy. If your significant other finds your hair on their pillow, they go, what were you doing on my side? Why did you do this? Right? So it's a learned behavior. And you see that couples, the only switch sides, I've learned, when they get much older. And they only, if they're traveling, Right, they have an agreement between the two of them that one of them, whoever gets up most often to go to the bathroom, is going to be closer to, to the bathroom. So if the bathroom's on the opposite side of the room when they travel, they switch sides that night. That's about it. And you see this with babies, not with babies, excuse me, with toddlers. They know which side of the bed which parent is on. They only go to one side to seek out that one parent. Ah. In the complete dark, they know where to go. So sleeping is a learned behavior. And if you don't believe me that sleeping is learned, if you're sleeping uh, by yourself, simply rotate your body, put your feet where your pillow normally goes. See what's going to happen. You're going to fall out of bed. You're going to feel completely weird. Same bed you've always been in. Sleeping is a learned behavior. So you must learn how to sleep. And with couples, with families, this is very true. Every couple you meet, you get one light sleeper per couple. You'll, you'll rarely, if ever, see two insomniacs pair off. They don't put up with each other. That's a good point, actually. Insomniacs don't sleep with other insomniacs. Why would they do that? You not only have to be awake compatible. They'd be up all night. You don't have to be sleep compatible, right? How can you be sleep compatible with somebody? Right. And, and you meet people who broke up because of the way somebody slept. Snoring is an obvious example. Right. But you're going to say something. Michael? Absolutely. I wanted to uh, I, I have always wondered why like Match.com and eHarmony doesn't ask a ton of sleep questions right in the front end of the profile. Right. Because by the time you're sleeping with somebody, you're well past, you know, the initial stages of the relationship. And, it, and, and it's far. You, you can't ask the questions anymore. Like, do you like it warm? Do you like it cold? Do you like a firm mattress, soft mattress? You know, I snore. Do you like all of those things would be great to know, especially your chronotype. Right. I'm an early bird. You're a night owl. How is this whole thing going to work? Nobody ever talks about it, but you're right. These are all learned behaviors. I think we should have a CPAP dating service where you find that in advance, does your partner use CPAP? You go, people always, when you start somebody in CPAP, the breathing machines for sleep apnea, people say, So we're going to see like Tinder for for OSA, right? Well, think about it. People (laughs) say all the time, well, uh, women especially uh, will think, well, I'm unattracted to my partner if I have a CPAP mask and they don't want to wear one if they're dating. And I'm like, no, it's quite the opposite. The data is that women who use CPAP have a higher sexual function, more great social satisfaction. They get better quality sleep. And also, if you know that your significant other you're considering dating is on CPAP, that's good news. They care about their health. They're taking something exactly. of it. They're not gonna be, when people start dating, when they, uh, a lot of times they're drinking alcohol more often, right? And that makes you snore louder. So you may fall asleep person and wake up in the morning waking up by yourself because your snoring drove them away. <laughs> if you know they have CPAP, they, they why not do a CPAP dating service? So again, people learn to sleep a certain way. And, and when you get to this issue with couples, um, not only do you help um, early on the relationship, you'll find out whether match to, told you not, who, who among you sleeps a little bit less than the other person. When you first start, you go to bed together, you get up to bed together, but that doesn't last too long. One of you sleeps less than the other, one of you sleeps more than the other. One of you sleeps lighter than the other, one sleeps deeper, deeper than the other. And early on in the relationship, you're going to see that one of you sleeps less than the other. And if you this relationship develops further and you start a family, and there's all kinds of families out there, but you'll see that the one who's the light sleeper 
um, has to be aware of the baby crying at night. And the one who's the deep sleeper, if they're sleeping and they hear the baby cry, they wake up, they, they quickly slam their eyes shut as fast as they can, pretend they're sleeping, and they wait for the other person to wake up and take care of the baby. So sometimes whoever gets whoever's the deep sleeper is pretending to be asleep. And the light sleeper knows this bum's not getting up. I got to go take care of it. So my advice to any couple forming for the first time immediately claim the throne of being the deep sleeper right, right. and i've seen couples <laughs> where they separate and start new, new relationships the, the the light sleeper becomes a deep sleeper vice versa they, they change roles you want right. to be they the know, deep sleeper. they know the pros and cons and sure. when somebody's a light sleeper that has insomnia they say all the time well my significant other sleeping through the night and you know i'm suffering here and, they, and they're not even aware of what i'm going through and i explain to them the reason that your partner can sleep deeply is because they have you the lighter you sleep, the deeper they can sleep. If somebody's going to break into the house, I don't have to worry. I have a light sleeper right. next to me. I got you. <laughs> right? And that's what happens. So you got to think about how the entire family sleeps. There's a whole dynamic. That makes sense. So, okay. So then that makes me ask you an interesting question, right? And so let's say that we've got a couple who's kind of figured out how to sleep together. And we're going to get back to some of those issues as well. But we've got a new child into the mix. Right. And and maybe that child, let, let's say that child actually is having difficulty sleeping. Maybe we're past the early infant. We're, we're kind of in the 16, 18 month range. Right. And parents are thinking, oh, gosh, I've got a child that won't go to sleep. We need to do sleep training. Right. And so there's a whole host of different options out there for moms and grandmothers and people who are trying to help train this learned behavior. Right. Because you said it yourself. Sleep is a learned behavior. So do you have any thoughts or ideas about the, some of the better ways to train children for sleep? Because there are, uh, the, you know, people have heard of the cry it out method. They've heard of baby wise. They've heard of um, healthy baby, happy life, all, all these different things. What, what are your thoughts? So before I came on the show, and I know this is being recorded, but to the audience, what I was just doing just before I came on and to talk to you, Michael, was I was talking to a couple with a 17-month-old with this situation. Perfect. <laughs> so so you did not know that. Uh, I had no, you had idea. no idea. But you said 16 to 18-month-old. That, that's what's on my mind. That's what I just finished before I came over to talk with you. Perfect. I was, I was talking to a family of a 17-month-old and um, family, uh, young couple. No grandparents around. They've relocated to the Bay Area. I, I'm, in, I'm in the Stanford area. Um, they know nobody in, in, around here. They're by themselves. It's the two of them and this, the 17-month-old who's not sleeping at night. And the mother's still nursing because she wants to nurse. And what do you, what's going on with and, – and, and the issue is that the kid um, is not sleeping well. And the first thing is as far as the advice books, all books contradict each other. You cannot, you can't, but it, it's the nature of, of the business. You cannot publish, if you want to try to publish a book, the publisher will say, well, what's your, different about your book than the right, other book? Exactly. Books? What's so different about your program? Right. And you, and if you say, well, it's, it's an agreement, they'll say, what are we publishing it for? So all the books disagree with each other. Um, and nobody's going to come spend time seeing you or I take time out of their day if a $10 paperback can solve the problem for them. So as a clinician, you need to know all the techniques. You need to have an idea what's going on and what they've been around to. Getting back to this simple idea that sleep is a learned behavior, all sleep problems may have physical problems wrong with them. They could be um, behavioral, uh, they could be circadian, and there could be psychological issues. So I like to get a sense of all that. Well, the first thing I want to do when I talk with any couple, and by the way, I'm using couple loosely. It doesn't have to be a couple. There's all kinds of families, all kinds of families. Um, so I'm just generalizing. Before I delve into how the baby is sleeping or the toddler is sleeping, 
I want to take a step back. I want to take a giant step back and find out how the parents slept before they were parents themselves. Because let's just say you have, again, I'm just generalizing. You have a mom who has a baby that sleeps seven hours in a row at night. Born to a woman who, before she was ever a mother, used to sleep six hours a night. She'll tell all her friends what a great baby she has. She becomes the queen of the new mother's group. She gives advice to all the other parents how to raise their kids because her kids sleep through the night. Because sleeping through the night simply means the kid is sleeping when I, uh, as long as I'm sleeping. It doesn't disturb my sleep. You take that same seven-hour sleeping baby born to a woman or mom who is sleeping eight hours a night. She'll bitterly complain the kid's not letting her get a full night of sleep. Same seven-hour sleeping baby. And it is not just moms. It could be the dads. It could be other members of the family. I want to get a sense of how people slept before they were parents. Because the only break a parent gets not to be a parent is when the kid is sleeping. So you can imagine a mom, again, I'm just generalizing, who had a history of insomnia. And she's not sensitized to this issue. You have a parent who says to you, well, the baby wakes up twice a night uh, to feed and falls back to sleep quickly. Well, what's the problem? Well, I can't get back to sleep myself, so you've got to stop him from waking up. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is that you can get back to sleep. Or you may have a dad who has subacute sleep apnea. A lot of guys have sleep apnea. I'm not taking care of it. They have, they're snoring. They've not addressed their sleep apnea yet. It's mild. But now you introduce the normal interruptions of normal parenting, and it's a double whammy. They have sleep apnea. So I want to get a sense of, of how they slept before they were parents first. Once I get that baseline, then we can figure out what do they want, okay? What did you go for this family, the 17-month-old? They're saying, well, we want to find out what's best for our child. Of course you do. Every parent right. was the best but for the not, child. But that's, that's not, not their the goal. issue. Their goal is to go back to sleep. Right. Because <laughs> what the baby, you know, if I, if I, one of the first times I, I got ever got, got interviewed was some, a magazine called Baby Talk. And they said, what, what would the baby tell you if the baby could talk? And I thought about this. What an odd question. Well, I guess the baby would say, don't leave me alone. Nobody put their babies in separate caves 30,000 years ago, right? Exactly. If I was 17 months old, where would I want to sleep? I would love to be held by my mother, nursed whenever I want, cut, kissed and cuddled. It's delightful. That's not the problem. The baby has no problem with this. The problem is when the, the parents want to get a break themselves to sleep and the baby is not used to it. So babies are born eating and sleeping randomly. You don't adapt to them. They adapt to you. So if you had a couple, for example, that were night shift workers and are sleeping in the daytime and active at night, you'd have a baby that adapts to them and would be up at night and sleeping in the daytime. And that'd be a perfectly happy family. So right. what you really want to do is find out what I asked him to do is what is how much sleep does your baby get in total? They go an hour he nap here, an hour there, uh, sleep or whatever. So let's say you get the kid sleeps twelve hours a night. If you could have things your way, what wake up time would you want? They go, oh well, we don't care what time we wake up. We care about, about falling asleep. He goes no, let's stop here. It's easier to force somebody to wake up than force somebody to fall asleep. We're going to lock in the wake up times first, and then we're going to go through the. Then the other question I'll have is. What's the longest stretch this child has gone without food? Right. Oh, the one time the key was he can go 11 hours without food, but he doesn't like it. All right. But you know, Me either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now you know they're not going to go into hypoglycemic shock. Find out from the parents themselves what's been their experience. It's not for me to impose what I think is right. It's for me to find out what's this baby doing on their own, and then let's manipulate this to fit the family best. So you got to get over this issue a little bit. And parents will worry, especially talking to first-time parents. Uh, they'll talk to you, well, what, what if they cry? What if something happens? What if this? And I always ask them the same question. And I'll ask you, Michael, is, is, is your mom alive? I don't know this about you. Is your mom alive? Yeah, my mom's alive. My mom's alive too. How old were you when your mom stopped worrying about you, Michael? 
I think she's worrying about me right this very moment. <laughs> I know. My mom's worried about me too. So, so to be a parent is to worry. And it seems like, it, and it's not to be flippant, it's to accept that you need to learn to you to be able to sleep despite the uncertainties of life. Mm-hmm. So this example of the 17-month-old that I was talking about that I saw, I spoke to just a, a, before I came on the air with you, uh, last night, the father took it upon himself to him to sleep with the child on a sofa, and the mother had the bed, she needs a break, and that night they did not nurse her. She felt really weird because she's nursing every night. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it was their decision to do this. I'm talking to them today, so, and I said, well, I asked the mom, well, dad slept on the couch with the baby. The baby woke up three or four times, but fell back to sleep every time. How did, what happened with you? The mom said, I woke up anyway, even though they weren't there because I'm used to waking up. I'm like, it's going to take a little while for you to learn to do this. So I try to figure out what the family wants and then adapt mm. with the physiology that we know to what to do. I try not to have a cookie cutter approach to it at all. Rest of them, we don't want to do it. There's a whole industry for sleep trainers and it's an unregulated industry. There are pros and cons to it. Yeah. And that was a, you know, that was kind of an issue. I wrote a, um, a blog about sleep coaching and sleep training. And one of the very first things that I've discovered, because several of these people have kind of tried to connect with me or said, Hey, can I borrow some of your articles, Dr. Bruce, those types of things. And I, I always say, well, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you, but may I ask you first, you know, when you are talking with a parent, do you screen for, uh, obstructive sleep apnea? Do you screen for, you know, real reflux, sleep disorders, heartburn, heartburn, reflux, heartburn, I mean, on and on and on. And almost every single one of them is like, what are you talking about? Like they have almost no medical experience. And so what ends up happening is on, unfortunately, a lot, it's a lot of buyer beware because mom could get a sleep coach out there, but they could be missing a major medical situation because that person isn't trained. So one of the things that I'm always talking about to parents is look, books are great. Um, sleep whisperers and things like that are good. But number one thing is if you have a child that isn't sleeping well, you absolutely positively need to make sure that there isn't something medically going on there first. Once you've passed that, then there's a whole host of different things. And, and for me, I like to try to match the therapy with the vibe, if you will, of the family. Right. And so some families are very strict, very stern, very, we're going to do this, this way and that, that way. Some families are a little bit more loosey goosey and they like to maybe have the child spend the night in the bed with them a couple of times or, or something along those lines. And so I try to be adaptive. Um, but one thing I've definitely seen out there, um, is this contradiction that you mentioned earlier. I mean, I know for historically there was a big push for cry it out, cry it out, cry it out. And then data came out that said, actually, that's probably not the best idea. So I think one of the, one of the messages that's important to give to a lot of the moms out there is there is no one method right? Find the method that works the best with your child and you, right? And I think that's the big important thing is it's not just about, we need to get the baby to sleep better, but we need to get the family to sleep better. And I think that's really where we see all of the value, all of the props come up when everybody in the house is sleeping well, not just baby. Right. The way sometimes I try to distinguish that physical from behavioral is a simple question. I asked the parents, uh, especially for a toddler and infant, uh, if you give the child everything that they want, do they sleep better or worse or the same? Oh, no. If the, if, the, if, the, if the kid's in bed with me, it's fine. Everything's okay. Then it's more like it'd be behavioral. No, 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 no. Even when we give him what he wants, he still cries, wake up, he's still upset. Then it's probably something physical. Or it, or it could be a combination. Sure. The, my youngest case of, um, I'll never forget, it was a two-year-old who, um, one of my youngest kids is a two-year-old girl who was adopted from China and um, didn't speak English, 
They didn't have any of the birth history, just an adopted child from China, fortunate, very loving family. Imagine a family adopts a baby from China and this kid's not sleeping well. And I was like, okay, we go through the whole thing. And, you know, they tried everything, sleeping with her, not sleeping with her. And I said, well, does she sleep better with you or without you? He goes, no, we'd be happy to sleep with her. But even when she sleeps with us, she's moving too much. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe she has restless leg syndrome. Right, that sounds physical. Yeah, restless legs. Let's, let's get her iron status. And sure enough, she, she, she was malnourished, had low iron, and that was causing her to have restless legs. And we treated her with a little bit of medication for restless legs, started sleeping better. Parents were extremely grateful. And when she first learned to speak English, one of the first English words she learned to say was itchy because her legs would bother her. And she learned to say that. Oh, my gosh. So, but, wow. but that was, you get it, because restless legs is a, is a diagnosis based purely on history. But when the child can't speak, what do you do? Right? You got to go with the parents' Absolutely. experience. It. So anyway, that happens. But that's the example of the kid not sleeping well, um, mm-hmm. despite getting all the attention. You know, the parents would do anything. And she's still not sleeping well. So then, you know, you got to look for something physical. But yeah, sleep training w- w- would have missed that. And I, I think this child did go to sleep training and, and it didn't work. It didn't pan out. Now that I remember. Interesting. interesting. So let's move on to m- older kids, right? And so I've got teenagers. I have an 18-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter. Congratulations. And, um, thank you. I, I, made it, I made it out alive so far. We'll see. Um, I am definitely the worrying parent for sure. Um, and my, my kids are good sleepers, but you know, when we talk about adolescent sleep, um, we really talk about an incredibly frustrating time, both for kids and parents, um, especially during those high school years. Uh, I'd love to hear some, some of your thoughts about what can parents do during those times that are so, so frustrating, uh, with their kids and trying to wake them up for school and things like that. Adolescence is an interesting, um, situation because Teenagers do some very uh, unadult-like things. When kids are um, little, the parents go to sleep first. Excuse me, the children go to sleep first. They get tucked in, and then the parents go to sleep. Now, teenagers will convert their bedrooms, assuming they have their own bedrooms, into mini studio apartments. Right? Yep. And it's not uncommon you talk to teenagers. I spend a lot of time talking with teenagers about sleep, that they spend more time awake in their bedroom than sleeping in their bedroom. And you ask them, they, they go to their room before their parents go to their room, but they go to sleep after the parents go to sleep. There's a biological shift for teenagers to go to, to, go to sleep later. With the onset of puberty, there's a, a shifting. And if you think about humans, again, back to what I talked about earlier, how people live in tribes and that sleeping is an inherently dangerous act and we sleep best in groups. It turns out that teenagers biologically, and other animals do this too, when they hit puberty, biologically shift to fall asleep later, more of a preference to be up at night. And this is balanced, by the way, with people over age 50 with a tendency to go to bed earlier. It is easier for it is harder for me to stay up now than it used to be biologically. It, it requires, of course, I can stay up, but it requires greater motivation for me to do it than it used to. I have a natural inclination now to go to bed a little bit earlier than I used to, and I was always a night owl. Um, so, so there's the shifting with adolescents to go to bed a little bit later at the same time, high school starts to start earlier. And that's why we think that one of the best public health things we can do is let the teenagers sleep in and start school later. That's the first evidence, by the way, that your child, teenager or not, has a sleep problem going on behaviorally is a tendency to sleep in on weekends. That's not a biological thing to do. It's a very crazy thing to do when you think about it. Parents let the kids sleep in on weekends. Why? Because they figured they need their sleep because they're not getting enough sleep during the week. We do not do this to kids with food. We don't say, hey, Monday through Friday, I'm going to starve you. 
for all weekend, eat all you like, because come Monday, I'm starving you again. We sleep deprive them during the week, and then we expect them to catch up. And the biologically, you can't do that. The brain is not set up to do that. It gets messed up. So they have a harder time uh, adapting to this change of schedules. So lack of sleep is an independent risk factor for car accidents and suicides, independent of mood. This is a very tough and difficult topic, but it's true. Um, Lack of sleep makes you impulsive and grumpy. The first evidence of not getting enough sleep is being inattentive. Lack of sleep makes you pay less attention, more injuries <laughs> in sports. Lack of sleep affects your immune system. So there's a whole host of things that you know well. But and more so when importantly, we talk about it. We just, if I may, the one thing I want to say. One of the things you hear over and over again when you're a kid, and one of the things you say all the time, parents say to the kids, everybody, if you're in any kind of leadership position talking to kids, what do you say to them? I want you to follow your dreams. How many times have you heard somebody say, I want you to follow your dreams? Constantly. But, but dreaming, if you know how dreaming works, dreams dominate the last third of the night. We've created a system where you cut off their sleep. You cut off the ability to dream, and you go tell them to follow their dreams. You don't let them dream in the first place. It's ridiculous what happens to kids. Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a really interesting point because you're right, because most people have REM sleep in the last third of the night. And that's what you're talking about is we chop that off by asking them to wake up at 6 a.m., 5.30 in the morning, these crazy times. And also with sports, a lot of them have to do sports before school uh, or they have practice two-a-days or things like that. Or sometimes the academics are early so that they can get in. They have an away game that's going to be a three-hour ride that they have to go to perform, compete, and then drive all the way home. Oh, and by the way, they're supposed to be doing their homework on the way home. They're supposed to be eating and they grab crappy food and then they get home at 11, 30, 12 o'clock and oh, they're supposed to go to sleep and wake up at 5.30 the next morning and do it all over again. So many people don't know, but you and I, uh, you actually got me involved in a, a really interesting um, uh, situation where we're trying to get other states to change the school start times. And I've actually uh, been on television talking about changing school start times. Uh, would you be able to tell some of our listeners a little bit about um, about sort of the, the nationwide idea of what we're trying to accomplish? Sure. Thank you. Um, thank you for doing that. Um, we've known for a long time that teenagers aren't getting enough sleep and that teenagers have this genetic tendency, this, excuse me, the circadian tendency to stay up late at night. Uh, and it's simply not telling them to go to bed earlier. It doesn't work because they're genetically set up to do this. Um, there's a biological need for sleeping. We're not surprised that our teenagers eat a lot of food. If you've got teenage boys in your house, teenagers, they eat a lot. You go, Gee, I'm, I'm surprised. they can eat a lot. Why are you surprised they can sleep a lot? Physical growth, the lengthening of our bones occurs in sleep. So there's this need for more sleep. Um, so we've known that they have these, these issues and these sleep disorders that Lack of sleep mimics depression in teenagers. But experiments, but somebody had the idea in, um, it was in Brown University initially, but it was actually implemented in Minnesota where they just started school later. And they thought, well, this is stupid. If you just, school starts later, kids are just going to stay up later. It's like telling somebody who's hungry, I'm not going to give you more food. You're just going to waste it. No, actually it turns out that when they have the kids start school later, they stayed up a little bit later, but they got like 45 more minutes of sleep every single night. And not only that, but the grades went up the, the mood improved. There were less car accidents around the schools. There was all these benefits from it. So when this happened, people were skeptical. Actually, a lot of, a lot of cynicism was around it. But they said, this is working. And then they started doing it in other schools, in another district. And it expanded. And this national movement began. And finally, in California, just uh, a few years ago, uh, they introduced a bill. Senator Portantino in uh, Pasadena introduced a bill to delay school start time statewide, which had never been done anywhere. 
And the first time it got defeated in the legislation. The second time uh, uh, it made it all the way to Governor Brown's desk, Jerry Brown, he vetoed it, unfortunately. And there was all this press of like, and, and uh, advertising saying that school start time should be locally controlled. It's like saying lead levels in the paint should be locally controlled or the nutrition. This is biology. Uh, but finally, but a, a coalition of volunteers, and it was mostly parents walking up and down Sacramento with PDFs of articles. We had no fundraising, no money. We never asked you, we asked you to talk about it. We didn't ask you for your money. We just asked, we just kept handing out scientific articles, peer-reviewed data, and it won out. It passed, and the data, especially on, on mental health, was really uh, showing improvements in, for these kids. So Governor Newsom uh, signed it into law in October of last year, 2019. California became the first state in the nation to have a law protecting the need for adolescents to get more sleep by saying that high schools in California could not start before 8.30 in the morning. Kids cannot be forced to go to school before 8.30 in the morning. If a kid wants to go to bed, excuse me, school earlier because they have an elective, they want to do an activity, a club, you can do that, but they can't be mandated to be in school before 8.30 in the morning. And that has caught the attention of a lot of uh, other states. A lot of other states have, have looked at it. And it's, and it's now it's, it's moving along. There's other, other countries are interested in this also because this is an international problem of lack of sleep. South Korea, for example, is the country with the most sleep-deprived teenagers on the planet, apparently. And they have among the highest suicide rates in that population. So it's very sad, very demanding. So California has been a model. In, in California, we have three years to implement it, and we're working on it. And the other meeting I had today was a meeting on, the, on a research meeting on how to implement this issue. So this is an ongoing issue. Uh, but... California has become the first state, and all the listeners out there, if you want to get involved, there are now nonprofit organizations devoted to doing this. One I'm involved in is called Start School Later. So you can volunteer and help change the, the school start times for your kids, too. Absolutely. And I want to encourage everybody. I'm a part of this. Um, Dr. Palayo brought me in and I love it. It makes a lot of sense. It hits home for me because I've got two teenagers and I lived it. Um, and so if you want to find out more information, Dr. Palio, where can people, if they wanted to volunteer, is it just startschoollater.com? Uh, that's actually it's dot, dot net. It's, it's, it's a dot nonprofit. Net. Start School Later. So startschoollater.net. And I just want to thank you um, for your time today. I know you might not realize it, but we've just blown through a whole host of time and some amazing topics. I know my audience is really going to appreciate it. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, Raf. You're one of my favorite people You've always supported me, always been a mentor for me. I can't thank you enough for your friendship, for your guidance, uh, and for just all you do for the sleep community. Thank, thank you. Thank you're you, very thank kind. You. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, that, hey, guys, this is Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor. And let me tell you something. You just heard some serious knowledge from a dear, dear friend, Dr. Rafael Palio. Thanks. It's always interesting when I interview other sleep specialists because sometimes I forget about something that they remind me about or sometimes they know about a new piece of research that I haven't seen yet. Dr. Palaio is easily one of my favorite people to call on because uh, he always seems to have answers. He really does spend a tremendous amount of time in the literature in terms of learning about family sleep and children's sleep. I got a tremendous amount out of it, but one of the things that I thought was most important was his approach for people who have difficulty with children sleeping. And his approach first is, what's the goal? 
what's the real issue? Who's actually having the problem? Maybe it's the child. Maybe it's the parents. Um, there's a lot of things to think about. And then maybe adapting the therapy to the style of parenting makes a whole lot of sense. I agree with him. I don't like this one size fits all sleep training. I think that's not only foolish. Um, I, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's the way to do it. Um, me personally, I'm not a big cry it out fan. Uh, believe it or not, there's actually data now to show that um, even the inventor of the cry it out method, Dr. Richard Ferber says, yeah, this might not be the best idea. I thought that in and of itself was interesting. And then such an interesting discussion on school start times and the importance of that. That is something that I am personally involved in. And I would I would actually ask fo folks out there to get involved as well. This is one of those areas where you can make a difference in your child's life in, in something very straightforward. I mean, this is biology, folks. It's not like we're talking about something different here. So I, I really do get a lot out of all of my conversations uh, with Raphael, Dr. Raphael Palayo. And I, I hope you did as well. And now we're going to be answering uh, quite a few questions, actually three, um, from the mailbag. So I got an interesting question from actually an old friend of mine. Uh, Charlie from Atlanta called me. He was our high school quarterback. Uh, actually, he didn't call. He sent in an email. And he said, I've heard that there's something new going on in the NFL with concussions and sleep. Do you know anything about it, Dr. Bruce? So it turns out that there is a recent study of something that was shown in athletes with concussion, that they had um, an interesting incidence of something called REM behavior disorder. Now, you may or not have heard of that before, but this is actually where people act out their dreams, believe it or not. And so there's been a recent study that discovered that rapid eye movement sleep disorder is common in athletes and may signal chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is CTE, which is the concussion issue that so many people have been talking about with them for so long. So it's, it was a very surprising finding. It wasn't something that people uh, were, were expecting, but um, it was an investigation between CTE and uh, REM behavior disorders. The researchers analyzed the brains of 247 deceased male athletes who played contact sports, and um, they discovered that there was absolutely positively a dose response effect, meaning that um, the more concussions um, the more RBD and the more RBD, the more likely to have the concussive syndrome. So definitely a fascinating, fascinating aspect. Not something that uh, we were really expecting to see um, for sure, but certainly something that I, I think most people would say is pretty interesting. Second study uh, that came out um, along those lines had to do with anger, and it showed that sleep loss unleashes anger. So, you know, when we're talking about um, a lot of different things uh, in the sleep science world, and we're talking about concussion, we're talking about athleticism, we're talking about all these things, with sleep loss unleashing anger, that too, that too can be a significant problem for many people. Next question I got. So this was really interesting. So I had a mom uh, write in. It was actually Hillary from Atlanta uh, as well. And she said um, she had a concern that she had noticed that some of um, her children's friends had been using e-cigarettes and had noticed that they looked really, really tired and didn't know, is that from the smoking or does is there some kind of correlation there? And so interestingly enough, there was a recent study that was done uh, in October of 2020. And uh, what it's discovered is that current and former users of e-cigarettes are more likely to report sleep deprivation compared with those who have never used e-cigarettes. According to the first study to evaluate the association in a large nationally representative of, of young adults. 
So yeah, guys, um, e-cigarette users and sleep deprivation seems to be a thing. Sleep deprivation was 49% more prevalent among everyday users of e-cigarettes compared to non-users. That kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you're a cigarette user and you've got a lot of nicotine in your system, it makes sense to me that you're not going to be sleeping very well. So again, thinking through these ideas of how can substances outside um, of our daily use, uh, our daily sleeping have a dramatic effect on our sleep. Certainly something to think about. Um, now, I was also asked um, an interesting question by my mom. And my mom said, Michael, are there certain things out there, food that can disrupt your sleep? Um, I've always kind of wondered about that. And so it turns out that there are different things that will disrupt your sleep. Uh, spicy foods, of course, can have disruption on sleep. Eating too close to bedtime can have a disruption in sleep. Many of you might know um, that I work with a company called Night Food, uh, which actually designs snacks just for right before bed. That's N-I-G-H-T-F-O-O-D.com. Um, but there was a really interesting study done by, you guessed it, Burger King. I know I wasn't expecting it either. The question was, can a hamburger give you nightmares? Well, guess what? Uh, burger King uh, set out to prove with an unusual sleep study that was done on its Halloween burger called the Nightmare King. So the sandwich features a quarter pound of beef pre-cooked weight, uh, a white meat crispy chicken filet, melted American cheese, thick cut bacon, mayonnaise and onions all assemble on a glazed green sesame seed bun. Um, and so they actually um, fed this to people and they did a scientific study over 10 nights with 100 participants who ate the Nightmare King before they went to bed. Um, they tracked various different things. And uh, you guessed it, if you eat a Nightmare King before bed, you are going to have some pretty funky dreams. Uh, it turned out that, let's see, people said... According to previous studies, 4% of the population experienced nightmares on any given night. However, after eating the Nightmare King, the data obtained from the study indicate an incidence of nightmares increased by 3.5 times. So yes, in fact, there are people who have problems eating just before bed. And watch out for Burger King, mom. I don't think it's too good for your health. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you know anyone or think you might have a fascinating sleep story to share or maybe make a tremendous guest, please send me an email at drbruce at thesleepdoctor.com. That's D-R-B-R-E-U-S at thesleepdoctor.com. If you want more information, feel free to visit my website at thesleepdoctor.com. I hope you learned something new to help you live better and sleep better. Until next time, sweet dreams.